Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Stairwell. Stairwell makes a platform that you set up in your enterprise, and then you can forward all binaries in your organization to it as they come in, and also historical binaries and whatever. And from there, it does a bunch of crunching on them. And this is quite useful, as it turns out. Stairwell's founder and CEO, Mike Wyasek, will be along in this week's sponsor interview, along with uh, Vice President of Business Development, Eric Foster, and they'll be talking about how you can press a button on their platform to find out if the latest big threat report from the likes of CrowdStrike or Mandiant is relevant to you. Uh, So, you know, those hashes in that report, are they present? Were they present for 10 minutes, two years ago? Uh, What variance has Stairwell linked to those hashes? And are those hashes present or were they ever? Uh, These are nice questions to be able to answer. So that interview is coming up later. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, we're going to start with this letter here from uh, the American Senator for Oregon, Ron Wyden. Uh, He has a bee in his bonnet about Microsoft uh, and has written an angry letter urging all sorts of, you know, arms of the US government to investigate Microsoft for sucking, basically. And I'm, I'm all about this. Yes, of course. Yeah, he uh, invokes uh, the recent attacks uh, on the signing keys for Microsoft's auth process, but also calls back to things like uh, SolarWinds and so on. Um, and you know, he kind of makes some pretty good points. You know, we are so reliant on Microsoft; they do have to be held to a pretty high standard because of the consequences if they don't. Uh, and uh, yeah, I imagine uh, you know they're quaking in their boots over at Redmond. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I we'll mean, this, this one, as you point out, it's sort of has been inspired by the recent attacks against that that impacted organizations like the state department where a threat actor was able to acquire uh some sort of key why not why no hsm microsoft why no hsm uh they managed to get a hold of some key somehow it was like for, for signing tokens for consumer accounts and used yes. it to access enterprise accounts and you know this this whole letter is a big angry wtf it's addressed to uh jen easterly the attorney general and uh who's khan khan <laughs> the uh, chair of the federal trade commission there you go chair of the chair of the ftc khan and um <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know if anything will come out of this i i can't imagine the fbi raiding redmond uh over this but no, it is interesting not. that you know that that he's written this letter to the doj as well right yeah and i mean you know he's always uh, pretty on top of of security issues and national security issues as they relate to cyber stuff and he's got a pretty significant staff that's you know focused on and understands these issues so you know it's it's rare that we see a bad take out of him i mean sometimes he's, he's pulling the wrong part of the issue but they're nearly always interesting meaningful things that he's talking about yeah i mean i just love that we've got a letter from a sen- senator here talking about key material you know what i mean like that's uh <laughs> that's a hell of a sign of the times right and it is as you point out it's like a pretty on point uh, criticism and you know it's an on point demand it's an on point WTF Microsoft WTF yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of us saying WTF as we read about that particular story and you know when it's being used to straight up sign keys to auth into the State Department's hotmail you know <laughs> email outlook um yeah, it's not great. Yeah. Right? Some questions, some definitely some WTF is warranted. Yeah, so let's see if uh, anyone actually picks that up and runs with it. Uh, if there is some sort of DOJ or FTC probe uh, into that, that could be um, uncomfortable, couldn't it? Yes. <laughs> probe. <laughs> Uh, let's move on. And the New York Times is uh, running a story from uh, David Sanger and Julian E. Barnes, 
which uh, suggests that this campaign we spoke about a couple of months back where uh, Chinese actors had been detected in sort of critical facilities and telcos in Guam and whatnot. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of sort of noise and rumbling about it at the time that, uh, you know, uh, Chinese APT crews were, were doing some pre-positioning attacks and putting themselves in a position to disrupt uh, critical infrastructure in the event of some sort of mil- military conflict in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, New York Times has this piece up saying that, you know, uh, It's a little bit vague, I'm going to say, but it does have this piece up saying that, you know, uh, the US government is is engaged in a very uh, significant effort to hunt down and and expel these attackers from all sorts of interesting places. One thing that does give it a bit of credence, though, uh, is a tweet from John Hulquist, uh, who's a a threat researcher quite well known. I think he's still Mandian, isn't he? Hang on. Click on bio. Chief Analyst, Mandiant Intelligence. Okay, got it, yes. yes. Who is still with Mandiant. Uh, And he has quote tweeted the New York Times piece. uh, uh, I'm sorry, he quote X'd on X. uh, (laughs) A link to the New York Times piece. And says, uh, we found this actor in land, air and sea transportation targets, which could be leveraged for a serious disruption to logistics. So when we first spoke about this, we were a little bit like, well, how do they know that the, you know this Chinese APT crew is, is doing pre-positioning for um, uh, attacks against critical infrastructure? You know, I, I did hear subsequent to us saying that, that the people who know, know. Uh, and, you know, when you see people like John saying stuff like that and obviously, you know, officials encouraging the New York Times to write these sort of stories, you, you do get the impression there is something to this. Yeah, yeah, there certainly is. And, you know, you would expect prepositioning in comms and, and supply systems, you know, for a base like Guam. That would be a pretty, you know, if you're China and you're thinking about what, what targets are going to be really useful for you to disrupt, like that's a good one. Um, there does seem to be some suggestion that, you know, the same thing is happening in other places, uh, you know, that it's not just Guam, that they're seeing this uh, elsewhere as well. But it would make sense. Like it would be a smart play to do that. So, you know, although we don't necessarily know the specifics, because no one's going to tell us the specifics until you know, <laughs> sometime after it's either happened or been successfully disarmed, um, it certainly sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, I mean, the Times says American intelligence officials believe the malware could give China the power to disrupt or slow American deployments or resupply operations. So it looks like this is something really targeting logistics. It makes me remember, you know, the interview that we did uh, with Andrew Boyd from the CIA. Uh, recently where, you know, he said a, a conflict, uh, the, the cyber elements of a conflict with China are going to look very different to the cyber elements of a conflict with Russia. And, I you know, you sort yes. of get the impression this is the sort of stuff they were talking about. And, you know, when you do talk to people in that sort of cyber war-y space, one thing that they do worry about is uh, is logistics. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, projecting power across the entire Pacific is not straightforward. Like, just logistics is so important for America because, like, that's one of its main advantages over its other competitors is that it is experienced yeah. at global scale logistics for their military. And, yeah, if you can turn it off even for a couple of days, right at the beginning of an invasion of Taiwan, it's going to buy you a bit of time. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I saw some TikTok recently with some American military guy talking about how just making the point about their logistics where they actually accidentally ordered like a plane load of toilet paper to some remote base and it turned up. You know what I mean? Like it was <laughs> yeah, like, no one yeah, stopped. Yeah. They're just like, okay, we'll deliver it. And like the amount of jet fuel and stuff, I can't remember if it was toilet paper, but it was something they needed like a very small amount of and wound up getting a fully loaded <laughs> like airplane turn up with it, with it. So they're very good at moving stuff around. 
but again, that interview as well, uh, the, the Boyd one, we don't know what sort of an impact something like this would have until it happens because militaries are quite, you know, resilient in the face of stuff going wrong, right? Well, that's the idea anyway. That is the but, idea, But, you know, yes. the, the Tyson quote. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, meanwhile, it's not just uh, the Americans accusing the Chinese of hacking stuff. The Chinese are accusing the Americans of hacking stuff as well. Uh, what makes this particular accusation more interesting is that uh, uh, China's uh, uh, you know, state-controlled newspaper, the Global Times, is, re- is, is uh, saying that the Americans have hacked into like seismology sensors uh, in, in, in uh, China and um, uh, to do spying stuff, which just made me think, oh, you know, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess having access to, you know, seismic measurements, you know, if you're, uh, I don't know what you would, I mean, there must be some useful things you can do with that. Well, like I think I think of- in this piece they sort of uh, mentioned that we're going off an Alexander Martin story on the on the record here. You know, the the idea is they might be able to infer construction activity involving military facilities. I imagine it would be very good for detecting bomb tests, things like that, yes. as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly nuclear weapons testing, like using seismic measurement—that's a thing. Uh, that's you know, hundred percent legit. But I feel like the US already has enough seismic yeah. sensors to do that, um, given that they've been doing it in North Korea as well. Um, but yeah, maybe you can you know, determine the size of the crowd at some Xi Jinping show. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, that's what makes either this way. story interesting, right? Is he like, yes. oh, they're hacking sensors. I wonder why. It's the part that <laughs> yeah, exactly. we don't exactly. know that makes it more interesting. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's probably very boring. <laughs> now, look, this one's a bit of a head scratcher. We got a report from Forbes. I feel like the, uh, the headline on this one might be overdone a little bit. It says, uh, Pentagon investigates critical compromise of Air Force communication systems. But it looks like what happened here is someone took some stuff home with them that they probably shouldn't have um, and also had admin access to a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have. And anyway, walk us through this one. What actually happened here? So the story goes that an engineer who worked at an Air Force base in Tennessee uh, on radio equipment used on the base had taken a bunch of things home. So taken some equipment home, had software access uh, and other bits and pieces, and they raided this house and found this. And the raid was triggered because some of the co-workers of this engineer had dobbed them in for like insider threat-like behavior. Well, I think uh, it was, I mean, let me just read that, right? Because that's yes. how we <laughs> reported it on Risky Biz News. But the the specifics are that he sold radios and radio equipment, worked odd hours, was arrogant, frequently lied, displayed inappropriate workplace behavior and sexual harassment, had financial problems uh, and possessed like base equipment, which is like, hmm, <laughs> maybe maybe someone whose uh, door you want to knock on, right? Yes, and uh, clearly knock they did, uh, and uh, yeah, found him like in the middle of programming some Motorola gear or something. I, you know, you, even just reading what's in the story, you kind of get vibes off the guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, but I get more you know. like just vague asshole vibes than yes. Chinese spy vibes, yes. right? Yes. Um, yeah, that's that, yeah. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, that's kind of the feel I get. And he hasn't been charged with anything. That's the interesting thing. So this whole story is based off a warrant um, uh, that was served on him to search his premises. Yeah, I think one of the other nuances that was in the story was that some of the radio equipment that he had possession of was similar to or the same as used by parts of the FBI as well. Yeah. So, we, you know, it's all a bit vague. Um, it is, I guess, reassuring that given the amount of people that have been doing weird stuff in the you know, US mill, 
um, over the last few years and have actually been spying or have taken stuff home and had it stolen by their antivirus and given to the Russians, for example, that they are being a little bit more proactive, uh, nosy yeah, yeah, and proactive, yeah. yes. Yeah, I mean, this, it's just funny when you read about that guy and you're like, man, how did he have that job? But anyway. Yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, time for a bit of an update on the Ivanti stuff, which is, uh, you know, that's the product formerly known as Mobile Iron. I think they're going to have to change the name again after this, yes, uh, probably, Adam. I think, so. I think uh, so. But yeah, we got some some reporting here. Uh, John Grieg at The Record uh, says that uh, uh, CISA has said that the Norwegian government was being uh, hacked with this O'Day in the Avanti gear as early as April. Uh, we've also seen the disclosure of more bugs in Avanti, at least one more. And Graynoise has started seeing this thing popping off in the wild. So that's a bit of an update across everything that's going on with that story. But, you know, when Grey Noise shows you the graph of the number of IPs exploiting <laughs> this thing going vertical, that means that yeah. all of these are going to be owned, like, in the next 48 hours, you would think. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, and the Mancisa has weighed in and said, you know, it's on the known exploited vulnerabilities list now, which means federal civilian agencies have until, what, like, August the 21st, well, it, which they, is about three weeks late. That's the t- <laughs> Exactly. That's the that's the time frame CIS has given them, but, uh, yes. You know. They have yeah, until they about make- a day ago, I think, really. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. And <laughs> like the bug was so, the original bug was so dumb. Like it was a, you can just talk to the API without auth and do admin stuff to it. And then the subsequent bug that they've patched this week was a, you can then turn that into command exec on the underlying operating system. So like with those two things combined, right, you're in a very good place to do all sorts of crimes uh, against anyone who's running that kind of stuff. So Yeesh, when the security product is getting you owned, it is a bad day. Yeah, I mean, Trail of Bits wound up developing like a MDM light kind of thing, right? It doesn't have full MDM capabilities, but it, it works to do certain things. We spoke about it a while ago. Sorry, I'm fuzzy on the details. But, you know, the reason they developed that is so that you didn't have to use this sort of crap. Yes, exactly, right? And it's way too powerful. And then the fact that there's just no auth on the API, yeah. like what the... How? Well, I mean, this is why, funnily enough, <laughs> the US and Australia, uh, you know, they, our cyber agencies have put out like an advisory on direct object reference bugs. <laughs> because, you know, there was, I mean, you could class it as a direct object reference you, bug. You, you, you could, yes. And, <laughs> you know, so now they're like, maybe you want to check for direct object references there, you know. I mean, what year is this? I know, it, it is pretty funny because it's the first time we've seen an advisor about it, like a general technique. And although insecure direct object reference is like what, number one on the OWASP <laughs> API, you know, security mm. list. Uh, you know, we, we don't see SZA putting out a warning about remote code exec. Like, don't have remote code exec. Yeah, we know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, anyway, so let's see how that... Maybe they should. That's what they should do. That's our advice. This is it today. <laughs> let's see Let's see how that <laughs> progresses over the next uh, week or so. Uh, now, look, you know, the Move It thing has been talked about to death. But I think it's, you know, we stopped sort of talking about all of the Move It stories a few weeks ago. But it's probably worth mentioning again because the scale of it. Yes. We're still just discovering the scale of it. You know, we got another John Grieg one from the, uh, from the record here uh, looking at this um, IT firm that got done with Move It. And PII went missing on 10 million people, right? And I think they're just Americans, right? Because it's an American company servicing American um, uh, organizations. It, the scale of this thing is, is pretty mind-boggling, right? When you think about how it's just a trash bug 
in a bit of trash software and probably tens, over a hundred million uh, records lost. And you just think, oh, you know, you put in so much effort elsewhere and then you just get pantsed by something like this. Why do we? Yeah. Why do we try, Adam? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, John Greig quotes uh, MZSoft saying uh, they've seen at least five hundred and fourteen organisations hacked by MoveIt, which, mm. like, that's a lot of a lot of impact to a lot of places. And there's some. I think the Club Ransomware Gang added uh, what, Deloitte to the list of people they've popped lately, and we don't know whether that's just like some boring stuff on their move it and we've seen Deloitte get uh, domain admin by people before so okay fair but uh, you know this is you know everything from small schools through to global multinationals right I mean yeah. getting hacked by this stuff it's pretty grim pretty yeah grim. it is it is and look again you know in the same vein we don't really talk about ransomware attacks uh, that often but there is one in this week's news list that's worth mentioning a Swedish software company uh, got themselves, I'm assuming, ransomware. We don't know the specifics exactly how they got hacked. Uh, but they provided electronic patient record transfer systems uh, for the British ambulance services. So ambulances are showing up in hospitals and they can't transfer the patient records uh, to the hospital, which that's not ideal uh, and not, you know, in terms of real-world impact, like a delay of even minutes for someone showing up in an amber, that's real serious stuff. Yeah, and, it is. So yeah. this is your regular reminder that file transfer appliances are bad <laughs> and ransomware is bad too, okay? Yes, everyone is bad. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And in more real peachy news, Adam, uh, we've got, we got a finding from CISA here that, and I quote, valid account credentials are behind my, most cyber intrusions. <laughs> I mean, I know when people ask, you know, like, so what's computer hacking like? It's like, well, step one, you get the password. Step two, you just type the password in and now you're done with the computer hacking part and you can get on with the uh, action on objectives part, which is the hard part. Um, it's a really, it's an important reminder for people that it's not just about funny exploits and, and you know, very technical stunt hacking that just getting the passwords out of data breaches from phishing emails from whatever else, uh, you know, it gets the job done and the lateral movement part, same thing. It's you steal creds, you pretend to be the person whose job it is and you do the job for them. Mm. And I think this is just a reminder. I think the frustrating thing about this is that FIDO2 nips this in the bud. It removes that part of the attack chain, right? And I think that's why CISA would highlight this in particular. Now I understand that not, Every organization, not every account in the world, especially when you're talking B2C accounts, uh, you know, not everyone's going to be able to use FIDO2. But I would hazard a guess that there's a lot of organizations, a lot of people who work for organizations uh, listening to this where they should really be using FIDO2. And that's kind of the point I wanted to get across this week. Yeah, like some kind of phishing-resistant MFA is pretty much table stakes for not getting wrecked yeah. uh, these days. and. It's amazing how much reluctance there is, even in you know, in organisations that are pretty mature, to consider spending a you know a couple of bucks on a token. Yeah. Um, when you know it's just gonna like it's so much cheaper than an incident response. Well, it's not just cheaper <laughs> than that. Like it's just when you look at bang for buck, right? Yes. I mean, this is the yes. thing that Fido Two has, right? Like, say it's like 30, 40 bucks each. Like, it's a one-time spend. And it yeah. just gets you so far and frees you up. And yeah, it, oh, just please, please, everybody go get some Fido too, right? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Microsoft's getting pretty good with integrating it all with Windows Hello and with Azure AD and, you know, like all the plumbing is in place for you to have robust auth these days and it's kind of table stakes at this point. It's funny, actually, Brett Winifred, uh, who works at Okta, used to work with us, he actually sent me a thing, I'll link to it in the show notes, I forgot to put it in there, but he sent me a thing the other day, a write-up on a phishing attempt where the whole thing was like, you need, to, you're going to lose me, uh, access to the ticketing system unless you disable your YubiKey. <laughs> so nice. he, he described Smooth. that as pretty good validation that FIDO2 works well, right? Yeah, when, yeah. <laughs> when stage one of phishing is getting people to turn off their, their FIDO2. So good. Uh, uh, rule changes from the SEC in the United States. Um, you must disclose, like as soon as you discover, uh, as soon as you determine that a cyber attack has a you know material impact or whatever on your organization, you have four days to notify the SEC. That's up from the two days that was originally proposed. So we found a bit of a uh, compromise there. And we can just imagine the acrobatics that, you know, in-house counsels are going to be performing to not deem something material, right? <laughs> As a result <laughs> yes, of this. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so yeah, they, can't wait for the, can't like, wait for the court cases. This will be amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We're gonna gonna see all sorts of people uh, getting dragged over the coals for coming up with creative interpretations of that. Uh, so yes, if you're an American company that's listed, then uh, you too should get a copy of Form 8K uh, to stick your disclosures in. There you go. Now, this one, uh, Suzanne Smelly, uh, for the record, has written it up. Uh, the White House has apparently unveiled a whole-of-society push to expand the cybersecurity workforce. And you read this and you're like, okay, this is cool. This is good. But then you look at the funding amount and it's $24 million bucks, And you just think, that is not a whole-of-society number. <laughs> you know, that's a very, very, very small part of a society number. <laughs> yes. And... There's obviously a lot to do. They want to have good uh, cybersecurity literacy for everybody. They want to improve uh, their options for immigration for people who are experienced with the cybers so that they can bolster their workforce. But yeah, $24 million does not go far uh, towards anything much these days. Yeah, I mean, that said, you don't need funding to change immigration rules. Right? No, that's true. So there's a lot you can do there. But I mean, you know, so I really don't know what to think of this because I think on, on, on one hand, you know, they're, they're clearly serious about doing whole of government stuff to to try to fix this workforce problem. But on the other hand, you know, you just look at that money and you go, oh, that's not enough. Are you serious? Yeah. Are you really? Like that's not a lot of scholarships to universities for people to go and study it, you know, because they talk about, you know, altering the mix of the workforce and getting more people in, addressing some of the historical, you know, disadvantaged audiences uh, for our industry. But yeah, 24 mil does not go far. Yeah. Now, uh, a White House panel of intelligence experts, Adam, has weighed in on the 702 debate. Now, when the whole issue of 702 reauthorization came up, most recently, right, because it has come up previously, uh, 702 is the intelligence collection authorization that's due to sunset. And, um, you know, it's an important one. Uh, it is definitely an important one. Uh, but it looked like the FBI were being a little bit YOLO uh, with its access. Uh, the FBI was being a little bit YOLO with its access into this data set. And at the time when this first came up, you know, I think you and I said... Uh, 702 clearly needs to be reauthorized, uh, but the FBI's use of it needs a good review, right? And now this um, <laughs> this uh, panel of intelligence experts uh, who've written a report for the White House have said that 702 should be reauthorized, but the FBI's access needs some limits on it. So that's um, <laughs> feel pretty pretty validated in what we said originally about this, Adam. <laughs> yes, yeah. This is this is the sensible thing to do. Like clearly they're not gonna turn off seven oh two, but also clearly they can't go around 
just using it for whatever they please, like we have seen some examples of, you know, specifically in the FBI. So, yeah, as, as we expected. Yeah, as we expected. I mean, Tom found that there was some, uh, Tom Uran, our colleague, found that there was some nuance there in terms of like the FBI's access being somewhat limited and, you know, a lot of the controls on what winds up in that data set being applied at time of ingestion so the FBI wouldn't get access. You know, anyway, so like it's not as bad as we might have initially thought, but it's also beside the point because they are yes. yellowing, and, you know, that that seems to be what they found here. So FBI is going to get reined in, 702 will continue. And look, staying with uh, in- intelligence and sort of surveillance authorizations and laws, you know, we've spoken about this, the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, which would uh, prohibit US government agencies from being able to purchase data sets uh, from data brokers. NSA is saying, whoa, 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 hold up. Uh, that's that's going to cause us some problems. I, can, I, I think they're actually making a valid point here. I think that that act is, most, is mostly going to provide a benefit when it comes to, you know, local and state law enforcement, FBI, you know, policing agencies that actually do have authority inside the United States to arrest people, put people in prison. NSA doesn't, Pentagon doesn't. You know, so they're they're sort of asking for a carve out here, and you you know, I can't believe I'm saying this, but they're kind of making a good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, like it doesn't make sense to apply it to a non-domestic context. Yeah, uh, and you know, as you say, NSA, Pentagon seem like the sorts of agencies, and I'm sure there's you know other parts of you know the externally focused bits of the US government that it would not necessarily make sense to do this for, because you know if you can buy the data on your adversaries commercially, then you know, why waste sources, methods and whatever else uh, on that when you could just go buy well, it? Well, it just might not be available to you any other way. And I think the issue here yes. might be that, you know, even if you're targeting, targeting adversaries, you probably can't be guaranteed not to be scooping up data of Americans as well, which is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a intelligence, it's a SIGINT agency dilemma as old as SIGINT, that one. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, you know, they've got processes in place to throw out stuff that they're not authorised for, which, you know, of course, it leads to the obvious argument, well, how do we trust them to do that, blah, blah, blah. But, like, this makes sense for domestic I think I think the reason I'm more comfortable with the SIGINT agencies these days is, is it's because, like, even if they have something incriminating on me, what are they going to do with it? What, the NSA police going to come around and arrest me? You know, the, the ASD police? Like, no, that's not how They'll this works. take you off the Christmas card list. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? So, so that's interesting that there's some lobbying here for a carve-out. Yeah, and certainly what we would expect. I mean, I can't imagine the NSA were like, hell yeah, let's not be allowed to do something. Yeah, yeah. But I certainly think when it comes to police, they, they, they're they the ones who need warrants. And look, there is the other wrinkle here too, which is what court would NSA go to to ask for permission, you know, or a warrant to buy this sort of stuff? It's, I mean, that's why 702 exists in the first place. So it's all just... You know, but then like they don't know what's in the data set before they buy. Anyway, it's just like I can see I can see why some lawyer at NSA flagged this He's and just said this hurts. This hurts my head. We need a carve out. Otherwise, yes. it's going to be a you know uh, paperwork nightmare. Uh, now we got an update on Nikita Kislitsyn, uh, who was a former Group IB uh, person. It's it's Russia based. Uh, it ran its Russia based spin off fact, um, and was arrested in Kazakhstan. 
pending extradition to the United States for, what was it, for selling form spring logins yes. in 20, yeah, from like 2012. 2014, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, anyway. Um, so for a while it looked like Kazakhstan were actually going to extradite this guy to the United States, but Russia did what Russia always does in these situations, which is to lodge a competing uh, extradition request. For a while it actually looked like it was going to go America's way, which was really interesting considering Kazakhstan has been traditionally uh, allied with Russia. Um, but no, ultimately, this all worked out the way it usually works out, and uh, Kazakhstan has agreed to uh, to extradite Kislitsyn back to Russia to face other charges. Yeah, and we don't even know what those are in particular, uh, and they may well be entirely made up and and uh, you know of no concern once he's back inside Russia. But uh, yeah, the story has played out as we kind of expected it would is very disappointing. And um, Ilya Sachkov, who is the founder and CEO of uh, Group IB, uh, meanwhile has been sentenced to 14 years in prison in Russia for treason. Yes, unspecified treason, quite convenient treason for uh, some Russian authorities, I'm sure. I think I'm it's sure. Sharing, sharing details on Russian hackers with Western intelligence, which might be, mm. I don't know, sharing some IOCs with... Yes, oh, yeah. God. Yeah, it doesn't. Either way, it does not look good. Uh, he's facing incarceration in a uh, strict gulag, uh, which is uh, apparently about level three out of four. I went and did some digging because I was curious about how the gulags worked. Yeah, so about three out of four on the strictness scale, uh, below special. So, and I imagine okay. that's you know a, a, a very Russian uh, definition of strict. It's not like I, I, our <laughs> definition with our kids, where they have to finish yes. their peas. You know, no, no, I, I, yeah, it did not sound like a fun time. Russian uh, strict is like, you know, next level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd imagine. Now, yeah. oh, this next one is actually, you know, well, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but we do. We do. We do. We do, we do laugh because it's funny. It is. So, Catalan, Catalan first popped this one into Slack the other day, and we all had a bit of a chortle about it. Uh, tell us about Viper and the vulnerability in it, which has led to, uh, I think, what Catalan described internally here at Risky Biz HQ as a massacre. (laughs) (laughs) There's been bodies hitting the floor on this one. (laughs) So Viper is a a programming environment for writing smart contracts and stuff that are going to get run on the blockchain. Jeez, I mean, you wouldn't really want to have a problem with that, would you? No, you would not want to have a problem with that. Uh, anyway, it turns out there was like a re-entrancy bug, like a locking re-entrancy bug where you can call the same code multiple times in crafted ways and then use that to bypass controls. And uh, I saw a write-up that described this particular scam, which basically involved like you took out a flash loan to get some currency to play with and then like transferred it around inside you know, these various Web3 decentralized finance constructs such that you could withdraw it multiple times and then pay the loan back and walk away with, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of people's apes or whatever. Yeah. Um, so situation normal in the cryptocurrency world. Um, one particular crew that got hit with this, uh, I, Bloomberg, so not necessarily the most reliable sourcing, uh, said that along with the like tens of millions of dollars, something like 60, 70 million dollars worth that was actually stolen, that uh, 1.5 billion was also removed for safekeeping. Yeah. Uh, which... I think just means them not allowing people to withdraw stuff or whatever's going on. But either way, these are big numbers for what really is a pretty silly kind of bug. Yeah. Uh, and much, once again, much as we expect in the cryptocurrency world. Oh, it's funny, you know, Catalan really tracks that stuff quite closely because <laughs> I think because he understands it quite well and also because he finds it immensely entertaining. Yes, I think it's because <laughs> like, he's kind of a troll at heart there. I think. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> 
Every time something uh, like this happens, you know, he's in Slack going, hey, you guys, yeah. <laughs> check this out. <laughs> um, what else have we got here? Oh, now, this is an interesting story from Wired uh, by Will Knight. And it's the sort of story that you expect to be dumb. And then you start reading it and it actually, yeah, it actually isn't. So you and I had this discussion today when we were talking about what we would, uh, what would stay in the, in the, in the run sheet. Yeah, walk us through this one. So the, the, the title is uh, A New Attack Impacts Major AI Chatbots and No One Knows How to Stop It. And you're thinking, oh God, here we go. But yeah. what you've got here is a description essentially of escapes uh, in, in GPT prompts and they're funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I guess the guts of this particular piece of research is extending the kind of prompt injection attacks that we've seen already with AI systems where you can you know, tell the chatbot to respond as though it was saying the opposite of what it meant or whatever so that it tells you the things it's been filtered to not say. Um, and so what these researchers did was they took some open source chatbot implementations and then... Uh, used access to the underlying model to kind of permute things to stick in, you know, prompts to stick in front of or after the queries uh, in a way that didn't really respect the human language meaning of those prompts, but still manipulated the behavior of the model. And then they assessed to see whether the techniques were transferable to closed models like ChatGPT and Google Bard and so on, and found that they were. Uh, and that's quite, it's a really interesting approach because you're not just doing it by trial and error as a human. You, you, they can write software to, you know, experiment with it at programming, you know, programmer speed uh, and then use that to manipulate. And the fact that it's transferable between models is also just really interesting mm. uh, and a, you know, from a future research point of view, really interesting. Well, I mean, um, what I find interesting about this is when you look at, you know, malicious content injection into like a web app or an API or whatever the hell, right? You know, you sanitize the input. Yes. The problem with these things is there isn't really a straightforward way to do that. And I think that's what no. I find interesting about this. Exactly, right? And especially when the the like the the relationship between the prompt being injected and what it's doing to the model is also like by de- kind of by design because of how AI works, pretty unclear. So mm-hmm. like doing semantic filtering it up front or doing, you know, kind of what are you going like rig exit? I mean, no, like it's just a very hard problem to solve and that's the sort of hard problem that, you know, we're so busy building AI-backed systems and no one's really stopping to think about how badly is this going to go wrong. So it's always interesting to see research that really is thinking about those problems. Yeah, yeah. So uh, everyone should go have a look at that one because, as I say, it's that it's that sort of piece that you expect it to be really dumb and then you get into yeah. it a little bit. And you and I both had the reaction, which is like, yes. click, groan, and then... Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, we love we love a good problem that doesn't have a straightforward solution. Yes, right? like that's, our, that's our bread and butter, right? That's why that we have is. good jobs. Exactly. Uh, now uh, we got one from Reuters here from uh, Chris Bing and Raphael Satter uh, talking about, and we reported on this in Risky Biz News as well uh, in that podcast. Um, there's this American cloud company called uh, where is it? Uh, Cloudsy. Cloudsy. Um, and a Texas-based uh, security company called Halcyon has written a report on them because it turns out they they appear to be hosting an awful lot of C2, right? And for all and sundry, for threat actors from like 17 countries, ransomware crews, this, that, 
Um, and what's interesting is despite being an American company, it looks like a lot of their infrastructure is actually hosted in Tehran. Uh, the guy who runs it uh, is apparently, I, I mean, by the sound of his name, I think he's Iranian. And so it would make sense. Like it might not be some sort of nefarious, you know, IRGC connection or whatever. But the point is this company has alleged that this is an extremely shady outfit that is probably violating all sorts of sanctions and whatever. It's just an interesting read where you're like, goodness. Yeah, we, we do love a good write-up of like the background of a bulletproof hosting company. And yeah. for it to be a, you know, nominally American registered in America, uh, company, even if it is run by was uh, Hanan Nazari. Yeah, who, you're right. He was Iranian, not currently living in Iran. He wouldn't say where he lived. Funnily enough, uh, <laughs> well, and he's also said Texas. that this is all wrong. Like we we must say that these are just allegations, Adam, because he yes. says only two percent of uh, you know his clients are malicious. Which already, as a defence, <laughs> that's one in fifty. Seems kind of high, dude. Got to yeah, be honest. Yeah, exactly. um, whereas other people are saying it's more like fifty percent, but. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, there's like you know Iranian actors, Russians, North Koreans, Indians, Pakistanis, Vietnamese. <laughs> like they've got the full the full set. Maybe after uh, this story, opera. they can start fighting each other to do third party collection on each other's C twos. <laughs> like maybe they're going to start popping through hypervisors at Cloudsy and doing it. Maybe that's what this yeah. is about. Maybe this is like trying to get like a East Coast West Coast like rap war going. <laughs> As all of these threat actors fight each other for control of the of the underlying box to get each other's C two, what do you think? <laughs> you think you think Cloudsy could sell it as that on service? There you you know, subscribe to a RSS feed of other. Maybe uh, this other is actors. all a giant NSA operation to do third party collect. Mm, maybe you see. Maybe yeah. We're through the looking glass here, people. <laughs> we are now. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, wheels within wheels. You you would expect though that after this story has run, that there might be some sort of. But I mean, why even register this in the US? I'm so confused. I, it does not seem to make a whole bunch of sense, but I mean, who, who knows? People people do strange things. Things change over time in ways you don't expect. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Oh, well. Oh, well. Moving on. <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, we got a report here from Alexander Martin at the record saying uh, that there's no evidence that ransomware victims uh, with cyber insurance pay up more often. Uh, according to a report that's been prepared in the UK. I mean, initially you think, well, what's your methodology there? But then you read through it and you see, and, and, and it seems like they have actually applied a decent methodology here and they found that it's not really a significant factor. Doesn't really vibe with what we've learned anecdotally about ransomware crews, you know, stealing people's uh, cyber policies, like seeking out their cyber policies to figure out their coverage as soon as they gain access to an environment. Also targeting cyber insurance uh, um, organizations themselves to get their customer list to figure out who to go after. But I guess maybe what this report tells us is that what these threat actors are doing in these situations is kind of pointless. And that's what I find interesting here. Yeah, yeah, I was really interested by this as well because it, that absolutely challenges that assumption that it's, you know that cyber insurance was not a great idea because it increased the probability that you would be ransomed. Uh, but it may just be that like there is so much ransomware going on that that kind of bias towards people who were insured you know, is such a small part that it's kind of not statistically significant anymore, if it ever was. Or it might um, just mean that, okay, yeah, we've got insurance. That doesn't change our negotiations. Let's continue, yes. you know, and I think that 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 might be it. That this is something that threat actors were trying to do, but didn't really move the needle for enough to show up in the stats. Yeah, and also like people like us reading about that, you know, we love a a, a good piece of irony. Yeah, you know, it makes for a great story. Like, hey, someone broke into this insurer, stole their list, now they're going to go ransom everybody. 
Like it, you know, it fits the narrative that we want of, you know, of everyone's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it, I'm glad that this kind of basic research is being done because we don't, you know, there's so much we don't know about what really happens out there because it's all in the shadows all the time. Now, looks like we've got a worm on the loose, Adam. Uh, affecting <laughs> something pretty obscure, but uh, nice to see a worm. Yes, yes, it certainly is. This is a, a worm that targets Redis, uh, you know, kind of key value store servers. Uh, and there's a number of bugs being used, but the majority of, of the process here is that you attack a Redis server, you get in, uh, and then you kind of, uh, there's, there's a replication feature that you can use between Redis to share data around, and that process can also load code into the slave Redis instances um, and then use that to propagate itself, start scanning again and onwards. Um, so I think uh, we've seen uh, researchers from Cato Security Labs saying that this is actually a pretty widespread worm amongst Redis installs now and that it doesn't disrupt the operation, the correct normal operation of the Redis. So many operators aren't necessarily going to see it, which is all in all pretty cool. Yeah, that's uh, pretty That's pretty old school too, you know, because that's what worms were before your sort of code reds and yes. your slammers and your blasters. That's what they, you remember the ramen worm? Yeah, 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 exactly right. You, they, Didn't you clog would. up the internet, man. It just, you know, just spread in the ramen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like this one, I think, distributed something called a miner, but that it wasn't actually a crypto miner, like it may have just been a placeholder for a future crypto miner or whatever other example payload uh, that yeah. uh, that they might use later. Um, but yeah, just kind of, it's kind of cool to see people engineering niche, you know, niche toys like this uh, on the internet. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to see worms again being a thing, you know what I mean? Because yeah. everything seems to come around again. One thing I've been thinking about recently, Adam, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, is we're seeing a lot of people attacking server-side enterprise software, right? Yes. Kind of reminds me of the days when people used to attack server-side IAS, Apache, you know, core and modules, et cetera, et cetera. And then we saw the big pivot around, what am I going to say, between sort of 2003, 2005, the big pivot to um, targeting client-side stuff like uh, Internet Explorer, whatever. I the wonder X era. Sorry? <laughs> the active X era. Yeah, exactly, right? So I wonder if we're about to see a similar pivot from targeting server-side enterprise software to client-side enterprise software once people start getting the crapware off the edges of their network. Uh, I mean, I think it's a natural progression of things. You know, we certainly saw the, like, the pivot back to... Uh, enterprise server exploitation and enterprise edge exploitation is a result of the browsers getting much better. Yeah. But there is still a lot of software out there that isn't a browser and isn't a, you know, an IIS or an Apache or now a, you know, a VPN or a, you know, something else that's by design on the edge of the network. But it's still, you know, indirectly reachable yeah. uh, from the internet. So I think it's a natural place to go look for client side exploitation and non, I mean, in software that isn't a browser. You know, rumor has it that Western operators, have a habit of using bugs in stuff like antivirus software. Um, <laughs> and you don't hear about it a lot because they're Western operators and they tend to be quite low volume, careful, you know, targeted. And I do wonder if perhaps that stuff's about to go wide. You know, once all the Fortigates get turned off or owned or ransomware or whatever, right, you know, maybe then they're going to go after. Anyway, let's see. Let's yeah, see. I mean, antivirus software is such a wonderful target. So much complexity. So easy so to get to. It has a huge it, attack, attack it, surface because it has to parse everything. Oh, yes, baby. exactly. We've certainly seen, you know, researchers do it for fun, but it never has really gone big. Um, but, you know, 
There's always time. Maybe. There's always time. There's always time. Uh, now, look, staying with worm stuff, uh, this is completely low impact, just funny news. Um, this one's from Lorenzo over at TechCrunch. We had it in Risky Biz News as well. Um, apparently, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which is like the game from 2009, people are still playing it, and there's some sort of worm impacting people through the game lobby. How does yeah, this one yes. work? Some kind of code exec, I think, that you can, you know, send via the lobby and then that's kind of propagating between players who are then spreading it to other lobbies and so on so like you know self-mobile propagating malware in the call of duty lobby chat it's it's pretty pretty fun i mean retro but fun yeah and there's uh bugs in a minecraft mod as well Mm -hmm, um deserialization bugs that are actually being exploited i mean i like that we see you know tomorrow's hackers and security people um you know this is this is we're watching this is them they're babby they're being formed do you know what (laughs) i mean like this is how they start this and is eventually they they're going to pop out as, you know, respected consultants. Yeah, ab- absolutely right. I mean, much like with the, you know, phone um, jailbreaking scene and so on, like there's so much interesting hacking outside of regular InfoSec. Um, and this Minecraft one's actually quite interesting because it's uh, like M- Minecraft's mostly written in Java. This is a deserialization bug with common bug class, but the attackers using it are attacking the Minecraft servers and then attacking back down to the clients and then stealing their like Discord tokens or their steam logins or whatever else which i mean that's real hacking good job kids good job yeah yeah i mean that's it's it's not bad right and that's what i mean like this is this is actually pretty relevant technique right i mean it it would work for cryptocurrency companies just as well as it works for minecraft people's discord accounts yeah but i mean there's always going to be like the pen tester on a team who's the deserialization person yes is my point absolutely yeah all right, man, we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so much for joining me to talk through this week's news, which is a you know lighter lighter week than usual because it's Black Hat Week over in the over in the US of A. We're not going, of course, because uh, Vegas is 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 a very hot and sweaty place. Uh, so we have decided <laughs> to sit this one out this year. But um, yeah, great to chat to you, man. We'll do it all again next week. Cheers. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Uh, before we get into this week's sponsor interview, I'd just like to uh, mention that Claire Aird is taking some time off her news reading duties with uh, Risky Business News because she's having a baby very soon and I just wanted to wish her all the best with that. Uh, but in the meantime, while Claire is off doing that, uh, Risky Biz News is still being professionally voiced by Caitlin Sorey. And uh, big thanks to her for filling in. If you're not subscribed to Risky Business News, it is a different RSS feed. Go subscribe to that today. Uh, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Stairwell's founder and CEO, Mike Wyasek, and also Stairwell's VP of BizDev, uh, Eric Foster. And, uh, you know, this is a pretty product-focused conversation, but it is a good one. Uh, So imagine this scenario. Uh, The new Mandiant Threat Actor report just dropped and a board member comes and asks you if your org has been impacted by this threat actor. What you do? Uh, I mean, you can plug a few hashes into your EDR console, if you have one, and maybe look for some network C2 activity in your network logs. But that's not really going to be an exhaustive search. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough times, right, when you're asked to answer those questions. So here is Eric Foster talking about how these types of searches uh, can turn into goat rodeos and why pulling together a corpus of all of your binaries in your org is a very useful thing. Here he is. You know, Mandiant or CrowdStrike or whomever, 
comes out with this great threat report, usually right before a holiday or on a weekend or whatever else of like, hey, here's this great new threat that's out. And you know what you'd immediately have to do is go grab somebody off of their day job and throw them the very unenviable task of go spend the next hours or days or even weeks trying to pick through all of our logs and all of our detections and go run a bunch of searches and figure out, are we affected by this thing? And what we've ended up building for customers that has been exceptionally well received is something we call threat reports in stairwell, which fully automates that entire process. So the idea is no exaggeration about five minutes after one of these great sources hits publish on one of these blog posts or one of these, you know, sources of threat intelligence, stairwell customers know, you know, within about five minutes, almost instantaneously, they get a either clean bill of health that says, we have never since becoming stairwell customers been impacted by this threat. So, so someone has, at stairwell HQ copies and pastes the hash in at the back end and then that's it? No, it's fully automated. So the entire process from start to finish is fully automated. It's all done by, by the magical machines. So, um, you know, we're consuming that threat intelligence. We're extracting all the indicators, all the IOCs, all the Yara, everything else. We're, you know, auto-generating all of the searches and investigations for it. Our magical machine learning algorithm is doing some really interesting stuff to also look for variants. So yeah, similar you know, stuff. Hey, look, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Find, find other similar stuff that's around this. And our customers, you know, because we have this complete historic visibility of all the interesting files in their environment, we can know near instantaneously has this thing, you know, and this thing can be something as big as move it or a three CX or log for J, or it can be something as small as just, you know, Hey, here's this random DPRK, you know, Mac malware, but you know, I don't have to worry anymore about was this in my environment three months ago or six months ago or a year ago, or is it in my environment right now? Or are my detections, are my preventions, everything else completely up to date with this? I know instantaneously, you know, or near instantaneously within five minutes is close enough for, for my book to be yeah, instantaneous. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know in an instant whether I was affected by this thing or not. And so, you know, we've had a lot of people just bias and just operationalize us just for that single use case. It's like, that used to be such a big pain for me and, and quite honestly for my guys where it's like, you know, I got to go pull somebody, they got to spend two weeks or two days or two hours, whatever, researching this thing. And the best they could ever give me was a, probably not affected by this. Cause you know, like evidence of absence and security can be very difficult, right? That's another thing that we're delivering for people is like, no, I can give you absolute evidence of absence. Maybe it's for 15% of the machines in your environment. If that's all you've installed stairwell on, fine. That's a representative sample that, you know, you can hand to your auditors and say, I can tell you authoritatively that these 15 machines or 15% of machines have never had the, you know, move it or vulnerable log for J or whatever on it. But those customers for us that go full enterprise coverage, they can literally say, you know, we've never seen this. We've never had this. I can sleep at night. I've got this clean bill of health. So we're, we're, we're talking specifically about file hash information there. Obviously, you're not going to be able to do any network IOC matching um, through the system. But I'm, I'm curious why you can't do this with something like EDR. Because EDR does allow you to do like file hash searches, right? 
So we're, we're not just working. That's on, Mike Wysak jumping in now. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're not just working on the file hashes. We actually take and store the actual raw bytes of the actual files themselves. Um, so you actually can do some interesting IOC matching in the sense that in, we collect those in files. In the sense that there might be some hard-coded domains that you're extracting from binaries and whatnot? Is they that could be hard-coded, yeah. but then we can also detonate those files and we extract the behaviors out of those files from within um, sandbox environments. And so we actually can extract out some of those dynamic behaviors for those files so you can match like but that. But are you, sand are you sandbox detonating every single file that comes into a stairwell instance? Not every single file today. We have yeah. ambitions, um, but in the sense that you are able to go over and do that. But when you start thinking about the holistic nature of the platform, you're able to go in and collect, say, um, all the files come in, they all get hit with, oh, geez, thousands and thousands and thousands of YAR rules. Um, so they get matched and classified like that. And all that starts building up a model. And we do have, you know, we use the dreaded ML word, but we do actually have some deep neural network machine learning models, which are actually classifying the risk of these files using a lot of interesting uh, data that we collect, like how common is this file within your environment? How common is this file across all of our different customers? Um, what methodology, like Steve Miller, uh, when he was with us, he wrote like almost a thousand what he called Yara methodology uh, rules, which they, they don't quantify badness, but they can say, hey, this file contains the constants of, of uh, I don't know, RC6 uh, encryption algorithms. This file contains what looks like hooks of physical disks um, and so forth. And when you start taking all of this signal data together, coupled with prevalence, coupled with um, you know, so many different factors, you start, you can triage and you can almost stack rank. Like what is the most risky file in my environment that showed up yesterday? And when you start being able to look at things holistically like that, I like to think about stuff as um, when you start thinking about EDR, um, these are systems that are almost evidence first. Like if they don't believe something to be bad, um, it's not, it's, it's the whole system is not designed to process it. Like we're designed to process everything down to every single byte of every single file. Um, and we well, do and it's that because you're not trying to do it every time on every endpoint, right? Exactly. And that's why that's the luxury that you have, which is you get to do it once, but you do it properly. And, it, and it's sort of like after the fact, Right, so you're not mm -hmm. getting that sort of real-time thing that EDR is supposed to be doing. But the question was, I mean, you can do file hash searches via EDR, right? Yeah, the other piece of that is, you know, most EDRs are going to have a relatively limited retention period. Yeah. So, you know, you can say CrowdStrike, great, 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 absolutely great product. And you can go into CrowdStrike and say, is this hash in my environment today? And for a lot of CrowdStrike customers, you might be able to say, was this hash in my environment in the last 30 days? Stairwell, you can say, was this hash in my environment two years ago? Yeah. Was it on a machine for 10 minutes a year ago? You know, was it on a machine for 30 seconds seven days ago that nothing else picked up? I mean, the reason I keep asking you about this is because that's what people listening to this are going to be thinking, which is like, I can do this with CrowdStrike. Why yes. do I need an extra tool? And, you know, so, 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 so the, the mic drop moment, right, is literally we can do the search that's truly unique is if I have a hash, do have I had any files similar to the file that matches this hash on any of my systems? And so mm. that's actually the that's actually the magic leap here is right. It's like I may not actually have the file that's in a it's in a report based on child fifty six, but I can have a file that's very I can have had a file that's very similar to the file whose bytes compromise what goes into that child fifty six hash. And that's where you start being able to like almost do 
you know, full scope, temporal, agnostic, uh, retroactive hunting and, and response work um, using impartial information, right? Like, you know, if I have never had that file with that particular hash on my systems, like that's the end for EDR there, right? That's the end of the game for it. But we can go back and say, actually, you know what? Six months ago, that machine had a file that was 98% similar to the file that matches the hash you searched for. You might be interested in that one. It's the peace of mind that I think you get. Like, was anything here, you know, we could, because we've gone through a bunch of r reports where, you know, there might be five or 10 hashes of IOCs in there. And then when you actually hit up our, the variant discovery, you find 50 to 100 that you realize the report was not as exhaustive as you would think it would be. And I think you end up with a case where people don't know that. And so in that sense, like, you almost have value that if you're consuming some sort of a, a data feed that says there's 10 things and like you, you can turn it around and say, actually, there's 74 um, and none of those 74 in your environment. We're not only ingesting files from, say, your company, we're also ingesting files from, I think we're up to like six different independent malware feeds and we're aggregating all of that together into what we call like the global object collection. And so when you come into our platform and you do a search, even if you have never had a particular hash before, odds are we probably have it in that entire corpus of files that we're collecting there. And we kind of allow you to hunt and search across internal and external with that collection in one shot. So when you come in with a hash, we're able to expand that out into the universe of everything we've ever seen that is even remotely similar to that. And then that's what gets intersected across your environment in terms of what you've ever had. Uh, it's incredibly rare for us to see a threat report where there's a little set of IOCs that is relative to the large data set that we've been amassing over the last three years to sit back and say, um, the, the information in that report or feed or whatever was exhaustive and conclusive. And so the first thing we yeah, do is it, we it's, they're, it they're, they're never complete, right? Never complete. And, like the, and then the thing is, like it changes, right? What's really funny is if you actually play with our variant discovery, you actually find people who are still tweaking old Stuxnet drivers and uploading them the various feeds that come in there. And you're like, hey, this is a variant of Stuxnet. It is like 99.8% similar to the original one. And there are still people out there who are trying to binary patch it and tweak it and, and mess with it. Um, and, and you can see that. So when you start seeing stuff like, go back last year, I think I did a demo with you with Hermetic Wiper. There are still variants of Hermetic Wiper showing up almost every week. Um, and it's a, it's a random piece of malware. I mean, man, if you plug a, if you plug a, if you plug a box just onto the internet and listen, probably code red still flying around, right? Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I still think there's probably SQL slammer flying around out there. You yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, good old, the good old days, right? So Eric, you're on the business development side of stairwell, you know, is this something that's turned into a major driver for people to put this in, uh, you know, to actually buy and install stairwell so that they can just answer those questions quickly? Yeah, because I think it's solving a pain point and adding more time to your team so that they can focus on better things. But it's also the flip side of this. So the the peace of mind absolutely is a part of it, right? It's the, I want to know that I'm not affected by this thing. I don't want to have to pull somebody off of whatever they were doing and have them go search for this and spend days or weeks to figure out if we were impacted by this. But it's really, it's those whatever, one out of 10, one out of 100 where I was impacted. Mm. And what we do there you know, as cliche as it is, I mean, we're trying to shift as far left in the attack cycle there as we can. You know, obviously you want to try to shift left to boom completely, but, you know, you're, what you're able to do is significantly shrink your response time here to say five minutes after Mandiant releases, you know, this great 
report on 3CX, I know instantaneously, you know, again, within five minutes, every Trojan 3CX instance that's ever been in my environment. Guys, that's all we're going to have time for. Thank you both uh, so much for joining me uh, for an interesting chat. It was great. Uh, We'll do it all again soon. Thanks, Patrick. It's been a true pleasure. Really, you know, big fan of the show. And thanks for having us on. Always great to be here, man. Have a good one. That was Mike Wyasek and Eric Foster there from Stairwell. Big thanks to them for that. And you can find them at stairwell.com. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.